reading from God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say, amen, to your thanksgiving, since they don't know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The word of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. This is now the fourth straight week that we are including a moment of silent prayer for another community that's been ripped apart by violence. So I would like to ask you in a moment to pray in your heart for the people of Dallas, the families who've lost loved ones, for the law enforcement community. And we continue to pray for communities around our country and around the world where violence continues to be a struggle. Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, and uh, we pray for all victims of violence. Then, you know, we, we, how long, oh Lord, how long? We don't know what else to do except to pray the Psalms where God teaches us lament and righteous anger. And so after the moment of silence, I want to share a psalm, Psalm 60, that was written during a particularly violent season in the life of God's people, Israel. All right? Let's go to prayer. Pray for Dallas and our grieving communities. Psalm 60, Psalm of David. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken in his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, on Edom I toss my sandal, on Felicia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory.
he will trample down our enemies. Amen. Amen. In the summer of 1995, over 100,000 people visited a church in Toronto called the Airport Vineyard. And those 100,000 people were from all over the world and would go back to their homes and lands. And as you can imagine, a movement like that, it got into some papers around the world. The London Times, the prestigious London Times, uh, heard about it. In fact, as a result of the revival at the airport vineyard in Toronto, people went back to uh, London and churches there. They estimate over 5,000 churches in and around uh, London had uh, moments of revival from the airport vineyard. Well, they sent a reporter to check it out. And uh, Ruth Gledhill visited a service at the airport vineyard. Here is her firsthand report and her response. After the sermon, Pastor Mumford prayed for the tornado to visit the church again. The band struck up the song, Pour Out Your Spirit. Outside it was calm. But suddenly, the curtain shielding an open door blew in over my face, and a huge wind rushed in, scattering service sheets and papers. Alarmed, I started singing along. Suddenly, nearly everyone else fell over or stood rigid, shaking, sobbing, clutching their faces or waving their hands before them. I looked back beyond the empty chairs. Bodies were strewn over the floor. I could see that many of them were not affected with the people chattering calmly over their coffee as if nothing was happening, while bodies lay splayed at their feet, bearing beautific smiles and looks of tremendous peace. I clambered over a couple of prostrate bodies for tea and coffee and found myself giggling uncontrollably. Turning to look back at the band, the hall took on a bizarrely infinite perspective. I felt dizzy. I grasped the chair in order not to collapse. And then I recalled I still had a day's work to do back at the hotel. Recognizing that I could not at this point afford to be slain in the spirit, I opted for spiritual sobriety and a hasty exit, my hands shaking only slightly as I ran and down the coffee, and I was out to the car. Now she rates the service. Architecture, ugly. Brick, glass, concrete, zero stars. Sermon, Mr. Mumford spoke on marriage, divorce, and the death of love, two stars. Music, Christian pop, three stars. After service care, climb over prostrate bodies to reach tea and coffee, five stars. How, how does stuff like this get into the church? Well, it didn't start in Toronto. It came through Azusa Street Revival in 1906, from the Welsh coal mines in 1901, through the Methodist circuit riders around uh, the United States and Great Britain, all the way back to the great awakening of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, which launched the roots of this country, but where there were reports of people in New England barking like dogs during the service. It comes through the Moravians, 
the Puritans, the Anabaptists. It goes through what they call the light monasteries in the Dark Ages. It goes all the way back to St. Patrick and Columbanus in the 5th century movement of the Celtic gospel. Through all of church history, there's been a vein that runs through that's glowing fluorescent orange, and it's carried the miraculous sign gifts of dreams and visions and healings and tongues and prophecies and wild stuff. Where does it all come from? It comes from here. Acts chapter 2. The day the church, Corinth, and Waterstone, and all the churches that proclaim Jesus as Lord. This is where we started. I don't care what denomination you're in, your roots are Pentecostal, folks. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's where we started. So, a couple of questions for you to think throughout this time we talk together. First, how do we implement and evaluate these kinds of miraculous sign gifts, healings, speaking in tongues, ecstatic experiences, all these kinds of dreams. and How do we implement them and evaluate them as part of our worship even here at Waterstone? So be thinking about that. But also be thinking about this. How do we at Waterstone get a little bit more charismatic in the congregation? How do we get a little more Pentecostal in the parish? How do we get a little bit more wild in the worship? I'm telling you, Waterstone, we're comfortable when we read books and sit and be quiet. If anyone ever stood up here and spoke in tongues, we'd initially be shocked. But then our elder training drills for speaking in tongues would kick in and we'd figure it out. But you'd be shocked, wouldn't you? It's just not part of our normal radar or experience here. And we want to ask some questions around that. Why not? You have not because you ask not. Hmm. What are we to do? Well, we're going to go through a text, the classic text, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, part of this letter that Paul wrote to this urban church in a Greek harbor named Corinth one of the thriving metropolises of the ancient world, one of the most vibrant churches of the ancient world. By the way, you know, right, when a church is vibrant, it often has a lot of struggles. It's not the dead, lazy churches that have troubles. They're sailing along pretty smoothly. It's very active and aggressive and passionate churches that often have troubles, churches like Corinth. And so uh, there was trouble in that. And, and so what we'd like to do is see what was going on in Corinth. And we needed to find some terms as well. What does Paul mean by tongues? What does Paul mean by prophecies? Then after that, we want to look at how Paul says, okay, here's how you handle those. Here's the how. When tongues and prophecies come to a worship gathering, here's what I want you to do. So we'll talk about what they are, how we evaluate and implement them, and then lastly, a couple of take-home assignments for us this morning from this text. Ready? 
All right, that wasn't very encouraging there. So the... All right, all right. Uh, let's go back to Corinth. Corinth was a vigorous church, so it had its troubles. There were, first of all, divisions in the church. Some people liked the way Paul preached. Some people liked the way Apollos preached. Some people liked the way Nick preached. Some people liked the way Danielle preached. Some people liked the way Jesse preached. And the difference between Corinth and Waterstone is you keep it to yourselves. Corinth was blabbing it everywhere, lifting up their favorite preaching hero, and it was dividing the church. They were a church divided. Pride is usually behind that because we all like to be on the winning teams. Also in the church, they were having real struggles with their sexual ethics. There was open affairs happening in the church. Some of them just really, like right out of the National Enquirer, a guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law. People were visiting the temple prostitutes, and no one was saying a word about it in the church. And then there were Christians taking other Christians to court in lawsuits, not only to settle you know, the financial justice piece, but really just to win and then when they would come together for a gathering, their tradition was often to gather and eat together first with a potluck. He has potlucks. And then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then they'd have their worship service. But when they came together to eat, they like had no manners. They just started with eating and this group would eat there and this group would eat there. And they shunned each other. And there was division going on. The divisions were also reflected in their table manners. And then when they would get to the public worship, and this is where we pick up in chapter 14, it was a total airport vineyard chaos. I mean, people would grab the mic and they were singularly enamored with the gift of tongues. And they'd start you know, shouting out in their tongues one after the other. It was, it must have been something like the stock market on Wall Street with just people shouting over each other because they were having this great time with the, with the Spirit and with the Father, but it was a mess. And as you saw in the text, as also read it, Paul was very concerned about what unbelievers and seekers and new people would think about what was going on. And so he steps in. So before we go on and talk about what he says and how to fix this, let's define some terms a little bit. First, Paul talks a lot about tongues. Because Corinth was enamored with tongues. So here's the definition of tongues. Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. At times in the book of Acts, it was actually a foreign language that would be spoken that the speaker didn't know, but he was given this gift to speak. And even on the day of Pentecost, God would use that for evangelistic people. So people from all over the the world that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast would hear it in their own language. It was an amazing gift. But also, in the epistles, the idea of tongues is beyond human language. It's just what we might call holy utterance. You know, right, that the human vocabulary is about 5,000 words. And I'm telling you that 5,000 words is not enough words to describe the beauty of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you need a little heavenly help, and the Spirit just comes on you, and you start blabbing with words that you don't even know what you're saying. But Jesus is so great that you have to say something. And by the way, I've heard some of you speak in tongues. Now, I'm not saying this is the gift of tongues from the Holy Spirit, but don't get on me about this as weird stuff. I've watched Bronco games with you. 
Some of you speak in tongues during Bronco games, and you run around raising your hand like the airport vineyard. Don't, don't say this is weird. You do it. Paul says, I do it. He says, I wish all of you could speak in tongues. He says to Corinth, Paul's such a great lawyer. I do it more than you do. <laughs> but he puts two things on it, and these are very important. We need to remember this when it comes to this gift of tongues, whether you, you know, have the gift of speaking in a foreign language, whether you have the gift of just being so ah, like bursting with how great God is, and you, you have to shout something. Consider this first. Paul says, and he says it in verse 2 in the text, that tongues is first of all prayer language. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Tongues is given to believers for their personal edification, their personal devotional life. Tongues is a very private experience designed as prayer time between God and you. So tongues is prayer. It's for you and God. And thus, and this is the second thing, when you try to bring tongues into a setting like this, that's another person's life. That's the gift of prophecy. So sometimes it looks like this, what we would call preaching or teaching. Sometimes it looks like counselors. Counseling is a gift of prophecy. Sometimes it looks like leading a small group. That's a venue where prophecy can happen. Sometimes it's one-on-one -on -one where one believer just is hearing the situation of another believer and they just feel God give them, and it, can I say that? It's often from something you read in your devotions that morning, which is why you always need to keep yourself fueled with Scripture. But you're, in a, you're hearing someone in their struggle and God gives you a word to, to help, to comfort, to strengthen that person. That's the idea of prophecy. And Paul says, when it comes to a worship setting like this, I much prefer prophecy. Why? Because prophecy builds up the body. Tongues builds up the individual. This time is for the body. Individual time is for other space in your life. It's interesting. Paul, Paul really unpacks this well. I, I love the way he does it. When he says, and if you go back to verse 3 in the text, he says, here's the value of what happens when people share their gifts of prophecy. And by the way, Paul expects all of us to seek the gift of prophecy and to practice the gift of prophecy. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Those are three very interesting words. Those are the results of sharing your gifts of prophecy with one another. The body is strengthened. It's the idea of building a house. Foundation, walls, roof, complete maturity, a place where you can dwell. It's, it's the idea of becoming built, uh, edified, um, put together well, stronger in your walk. You know, right, that often that happens by words, the words that we believe about ourselves, words that define our lives, son, daughter, husband, wife, mother, father, friend. All those words, and when people acknowledge that, those words in our lives, how much does that mean? So let's say when you were, if you were parents, 
you had young kids, and you just had a really, really rough day, you know, with temper tantrums, whatever it is, and some older believer who's walked that road ahead of you comes up, and you're like exasperated, you've handled it the best you can, but they come up to you and say, you know, I've been watching you. You are a good parent. That was a tough situation, and you handled that well. Have you ever had that happen? How much does that mean to you? We are built by words, shaped by other people's insights about our lives. That's the goal of the body here. We need to be in each other's lives with this kind of prophecy saying, here's what I see in your life. You are doing this well. You need to be affirmed in this area. Remember who you are. We had a guy in the church I pastored in New England. His name was Bob. Bob came every Sunday and at the time, we still had Sunday night service. Sunday morning, Sunday night, he was there every service. Bob never said a word to anybody. He was a strong introvert. I tried to engage him in conversations many times. He literally, I'm not exaggerating, he wouldn't say a word to you, just kind of nod. There was you know, nothing wrong with physically with him. He was just a, a, an extreme introvert. And other people, I asked about him, he he had just a really, really hard life. But the thing about Bob was, whenever we had baptisms, and when we pastored on Cape Cod, I don't mean to brag, but we had the largest baptistry in the world. It was called the Atlantic Ocean. And we would have these, these beach nights uh, all through the summer. We, say, and we saved all our baptisms for the beach nights from the whole year. And we'd go out and baptize people, and Bob would show up, and he'd get a lawn chair, sit down, and he'd be flying a kite. Little, a little kite, not like a big adult kite, these little Walmart $6 kites, and he'd be flying them. Every baptism for the five years we were there, every baptism. So finally, I, again, I asked Bob, Bob, why do you fly kites at our baptism? And Bob spoke. <laughs> he said, I fly kite at the baptisms because I want them to know that they are a child of God. Children fly kites. I asked Bob if I could share that at the next service. There wasn't a dry eye. I'm still just wrecked by it. What does it mean to you that you are a child of God? means you have access to the Father 24-7 and especially on the hardest night of your life. It means that you have a powerful presence in your life. You've never been alone and you've never been without hope and help. It means that you have a promised future that anything that happens to you here, no matter how bad, it's not the last word. You have a Father in heaven. You are a child of God. That's the distinguishing feature of your life. Go fly a kite. Bob had the gift of prophecy that day. And he built our church. The word encouraging is a great word. It's the same root as the word Holy Spirit. Spirit means one who comes alongside to help. One who emboldens action. You know, it's this idea when, when you played Little League, right? Or when you had a dance recital as a little kid, what difference did it make that your mom and dad were there to watch you? It meant a lot. 
when we show up for one another, we show up as family. So when you're here, it's like your family's behind you as you perform. We, sh- we encourage one another. They're just, we like to say at Waterstone, half a ministry is just showing up. You show up for each other. It means a lot because that's your family there rooting for you. The word console, comfort, is, is what it means. On the worst day of your life, someone sits down on the bench with you. Someone's in your living room just sitting there weeping with you. You know, we believe in divine math here. Our Stephen ministry, our, just the character of our church, you know what divine math is? One plus one equals three. God's in the room when we show up for one another. We bring those gifts to this body in order to build it up. That's why Paul prefers prophecy and speaking God's word to one another over tongues. Tongues, on the other hand, it's kind of funny the way Paul phrased this in verses 6 through 11, but he talks about uh, being like uh, listening to a flute when there's no melody line. You know, it's just random notes like a John Cage concert. Just, you know, whatever notes you hit, that's the, you ever listen to a John Cage? Google him. I guarantee you won't make it through a John Cage concert. It's just like random gunk. And that's, that's the idea when it's just all tongues and no one knows what's being said. What value is It's like a bugle, he says. It's like in the army. That, bugles were how they texted in the army in the ancient world. It's time to get up, time to go to bed, time to advance, time to retreat. If you don't know what the bugle is playing, what value is a bugle sound? And then he says, it's like being in a foreign country when you can't speak the language. If any of you experienced that, been kind of left alone and you cannot speak the language, boy, what, an, what a hard and fearful, alienating situation that could be. So Paul's point, when it's all tongues like it is in Corinth, it's not good. It only builds up individuals. And the point of worship is not individual experience, it's body experience that the body's built up. So... Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how we implement and evaluate these miraculous gifts. Puts two words on it. First word, clarity. Or Paul uses the word intelligible. He says, whatever is done in a worship service needs to be understandable. So in verse 13, as we walk through the text, in verse 13, he says, so if someone in Corinth or Waterstone stands up and speaks in a tongue, great. Stop the service. Is there an interpretation? And do you see what's actually happening? When an interpreter interprets what's being said, it's turning the tongue into a prophecy. That's the goal, to turn a tongue into a prophecy. So everyone can benefit and receive value from the tongue. And then he goes on in verses 14, 15. In the the text Elsa read, the, the NIV, it's the word understanding. In the Greek word, it's actually the Greek word mind. Three times, Paul says, when we worship, it's great to have our spirit, great to have our emotions, but it also must make sense to our mind. We worship with the whole person. It needs to be intelligible and understood by the mind. And then he says, Elsa read it so well, didn't she? said, when, when it's done, whatever, the tongue's prophecy, everyone needs to be able to say what? Amen. Amen means, technical translation, yes, I agree. That affirms, I relate, yes, amen. So when a tongue and it's interpreted, Everyone needs to be able to say amen to that. And then he says, this is so classic, Paul. You know, get to the point, dude. He says, look, bottom line. 
I would rather in a worship service like this have five clear, understandable words said than a myriad, the Greek words, myriad, our best translation, trillion. I would rather have five clear words in a service than a trillion uninterpreted tongues. Do we get the point, Waterstone? Paul says, make it clear. In fact, he said, there's in, your, in any service on any day, there's unbelievers, there's seekers, there's new believers, and there's mature believers. And the goal is to connect with your language and uh, action, connect to all of them. He recounts in verses 21 and 22 uh, an incident from, he quotes Isaiah 28. Very interesting moment in Israel's history. God is very frustrated with them. He sends some prophets, but interestingly, these were prophets from the land of Assyria. He sends them into Israel to preach to them. This is what God wants you to do. But they're speaking in Assyria, Assyrian. And Israel's like, I can't understand what they're saying. It makes no sense to me. Paul says, yeah, that's it. If everything's tongues and there's no interpretation, then that is an alienating experience. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not a good sign. So make it clear. Everyone in the room should have some sense. I'm not saying you'll experience it all. Uh, you know, some of it won't make sense until you're actually following Jesus. But it should be at least in language that communicates and reaches every person in the room. That's the goal. Make it clear. First word, clear. Second word, order. I am just blown away where Paul goes in verses 26 through, through like 33. He says, okay, if someone stands up and starts speaking in tongues, they're having this like really rich, great worship time. Paul says, look, when they're done, stop. Interpreter, if no interpreter, sit down. Shut up. I don't care if it's the best tongue session you've ever had. Shut up if there's no interpreter. It's only benefiting you. And when I'm watching my church at worship, what I want to see is benefiting everybody and the body of Christ. So he actually literally like puts directions. He says in a service, only two or three should speak one after the other. There should be an interpreter each time. And if there's no interpreter, move on. When it comes to prophecy, if there's, a, like I'm prophesying now and giving you a word, but sometimes um, other people want to say some things in the room. It should be two or three at most, very orderly, one after the other. See, when it's orderly, everyone can participate. And that's big. You know why? Because the character of worship reflects the character of deity. The character of your worship should reflect the character of your God. And God is merciful and he's full of peace and wants to share peace. So the reason that there's order in worship is that most everyone has an opportunity to receive benefit from the worship because he wants mercy to reach as many people as possible. So the reason a service should be orderly actually reflects the mercy of God to get more people involved. Paul says, so if, if it's tongues, two or three, no more, make sure there's an interpretation. If not, sit down, shut up. He says, if it's prophecy, two or three, evaluate. How do you evaluate a word that's being said? How do you evaluate this message? Is it biblical from the text? 
Was it honest to the text? And does it build up the body in love? That's how you evaluate. And that happens at Waterstone too. In fact, let me tell you. So if, if tongues ever happened in the service, just so you know what would happen. And maybe you'll get the gift someday and that would be awesome. Stand up, you speak it out. We'll stop the service for an interpreter and then we'll share it with the body. If you have a word that you wanted to share with the congregation in this time, and this has happened, happens a couple times a year. We ask you to write it down, bring it up after the sermon, usually bring it up, give it to me or Nick or probably me or Nick. We, if it's something we need to evaluate, that's something that was said, something that was wrong, we actually pull some of our elders in and we, sometimes we do it before the service ends. More than likely, we'd share the word with the church the next Sunday and tell you how we responded to it. It's kind of the role of the office of elder is to respond to some of these things in terms of correction or building up. But both would, we would share it if it builds up the body in love. That makes sense? Tongues, prophecy. Paul says clarity and order. That's how the gifts are to be implemented and evaluated. So what does it mean for you? Take-home stuff. Here we go. First, the driving pulse of this text, and you've probably picked it up, that Paul says, no matter what happens, you know, people barking like dogs, people lying out on the floor, people stepping over them with their coffee, whatever it happens, it has to be building up the body in love. That's the measure of its worth and value in the public setting. It has to build up the body in love. It's the force of the text. So let me ask you, I want to get inside your head a little bit. When you pull into the parking lot, is that what you're thinking? Lord, what gifts would you have me share? What, would, what prophecy, what word that prompted by your spirit would you have me share, like with this group or with my friends or with someone I know is going to be there or maybe a random stranger that you just sat down next to? What would you have me share with them that would build up the body today? My friends, I don't want to be too harsh on this, but this is really important. You come here first to declare the worth of God. It's called worship. And we praise him. And we're, actually, we're doing a preaching series on that in August, and we're already looking forward to it. But you come here first for God. You come here second, not for you. You come here asking, Jesus, what would you want me to do today to build your body? If I can be so blunt, what you hope to get out of the service is down here. You are here for God, and you are here for others to build the body in love. So, what would happen if as a result, I'm not trying to steer you or anything, but I am. Um, what would happen if you put it on your heart? Say, Lord, I hear you. I hear that you're calling me to help build the body up during this time. So for me, I'm going to start arriving at church 10 minutes before the service starts. 10 minutes. 
And whoever you put in my path, I'm going to sit down with them or engage them in conversation. And just, how are you doing? Is there anything in your life I could pray with you? I know I'm rocking the introvert's world here. What if you just sat next to someone and said, how's your week? Can I let you in on a little secret? The only people that are here on time, generally, are visitors. And tech people. Of course, I know tech people are here on time. Yeah. Visitors. What would happen if a hundred of you made a commitment to get, I'm going to get here early and I'm going to talk to visitors, whoever's sitting in this room, I'm going to work this room, see where God leads those conversations, give what gifts I can to them. I think we'd begin to catch up with the airport vineyard. I think God would explode things because the character of your worship reflects the character of your God. And God, more than anything else, wants you and I to know that he loves us. All right, that's the first take-home assignment. Second, Paul wants every service captured by the gospel. Look at the, verses 20, the end of verse 25. He says, the secrets of their heart laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul's goal would have that be happening every time we gather in every service at Waterstone, Corinth and Waterstone. Secrets of hearts laid bare, fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really here. That's the goal, to experience the gospel. Whatever we do at Waterstone, we want it to build up the body in love and we want it to be for the experience of the gospel. What's the experience of the gospel? It means, first of all, that God knows the deepest parts of your heart. Let me put it this way. God knows the words you've been using to describe and define yourself. And very often, those words aren't very good. Many of us have these words in our heart like, here's who I am, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm trash. I am broken beyond repair. I am unlovable. And you walk around and these words are heavy on you and you, they define how you live. And we want to come here and experience the gospel and the truth is this, that when Jesus comes into your life, he changes your words all of our lives are built and formed by words, and Jesus wants to change your words. He wants you to hear this, that because he died on the cross for you to forgive your sins, everything you've ever done that's been wrong, he forgives you. And every time God looks at you now, he looks through the Jesus glasses at you. You are pure. You are holy. You are forgiven. You are his bride. He loves you. He wants you. He knows you, and he still loves you. Every glance at you he has is through the blood of Jesus, and you are clean and clear. And he wants to change your words. He wants you to go fly a kite and know that you're a child of God. When you begin to experience that, 
you fall down and you worship. Worship like you've never worshiped before. God's here. He's changed my words. He's changed my life. The word worship is an interesting word. We talk about it much at Waterstone. It literally means to kiss the hand. It's like you bowing before the king to kiss his ring. But what happens when you do that? You bare your neck. You are saying to the king, I give you everything that I am. My entire life is yours. That's what worship is. That's the experience of the gospel. That's why we're here. So if you're here this morning and you've never experienced the gospel, God has never changed the words of your heart that define your life. And he, he wants you to know, he wants to forgive your sins and he wants to give you heaven and eternity after you die. Let it begin now. Just say to him, I'm yours. I'm yours. You can do that. I'm going to pray in a moment and you can pray with me. Those of you that have known Jesus for a long time, you know, every, come, every time we come together, we experience gospel. The gospel is not A, B, C. The gospel is A to Z. We never get over the gospel. So again, we too, every time we meet, we bow. Lord, all that I am is yours. So let's pray and then we'll sing it. But let's pray. This prayer is for those of you who today want to receive Jesus. Would you just pray these words in your heart silently after me? Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you died on the cross to forgive my sins. Forgive me of everything I've done. Help my doubts. But I want to believe. And I believe, Jesus, that you are God's son. And you want me to be God's child. So I will follow you the rest of my life. I bow before you and receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, I pray. I hope, hope you prayed that prayer if you haven't before. Now let's all of us stand and let's proclaim it together as we experience the gospel as his church.